We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dana Mills, who is an academic and author of a new book uh, that's just come out on uh, Rosa Luxemburg. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Um, So the first question uh, that I'd like to ask you is, um, for those who aren't aware of uh, who Rosa um, was, could you just give a a quick explanation as to who she was and and her role in politics? So um, Rosa Luxemburg was a Polish-Jewish activist, writer, thinker, um, who started working at the end of the 19th century and really saw the change of the century in. And she was named by some of her comrades as the best brain after Marx. And she was one of the most important interpreters of Marx, and especially an important advocate of democracy and the Marxist tradition. She was a um, democratic socialist. She was a revolutionary who lived through at least three revolutions, which is the two Russians and the German, but more revolutionary events around the world. She was a prolific writer, an agitator, and um, she really was, I think, a woman who fought for freedom through revolution for all. She was one of the most important advocates of um, really socialism from below. Um, Most of her work was done in Germany, where she came after, uh, she pursued a PhD in, in Zurich, and then she moved to Germany as a young woman. And she did most of her work there and uh, also in the Second International, which was then the big socialist organization that brought together the greatest minds of her time. And uh, she found an untimely death at the age of 47, murdered by the Freikorps, who were uh, proto-fascist militias that went on to be active under Hitler. So her death for many, including myself, signifies really the transition from a Germany that had hopes for a democracy to a Germany that moved into a very dark age. Um, and of course, you mentioned that um, Rosa was uh, from Poland. And I think one of the things that you very much uh, touch upon uh, in the book is her involvement in um, politics in, in Poland from a, a very young age. Um, to what extent do you think that the change in um, Poland, which at the uh, in the 17th century was quite a, a, um, a much more democratic country than, for example, uh, Britain uh, was. Uh, to, mm. Now it's, it's much more of a, an author, or, uh, authoritarian country. Do you think that that change was um, particularly prevalent uh, during uh, Rosa's upbringing, or do you think that it was more of a, a, a long-term change on, on, on that road to a more uh, authoritarian Poland? So we must remember that in Rosa's time, she was a subject of the Russian Empire. Poland was governed by Russia. And in her time, as in before it, so both Marx and Engels and Marx's daughter, Elena Marx, um, really important book that helped sort of the background for my own and a lot of my thinking right now is Rachel Holmes's biography of Elena Marx. All the three Marxes and Engels advocate for Polish nationalism as they thought that an independent Poland would be the bulwark against 
Russia and would kind of be the beginning of the demise of the Russian Empire. Rosa Luxemburg, from a very young age, dissented against that view and um, saw Polish nationalism as a detraction, as something that would only benefit the gentry, the Polish bourgeoisie, and advocated internationalism over nationalism. And she was a very persistent critic of the view that nationalism would be a way to bring down empires. And you know, at some point when this was already commonplace held view and it was clear that Poland was to become independent and other countries as well, she was still holding on to her view, which is interesting. I think it's very hard to draw a direct line from the period in which she lived and before it. She, she, you know, she studied Poland from early centuries and beginning of industrialization, actually, that was her PhD thesis, until where we are now, because the one thing she didn't live through is fascism in, mm-hmm. the, in the mid-20th century. And one thing that she really accentuates in her writing is the unpredictability of history and the fact that we can't foresee what will happen when history takes very dramatic turns, which is an interesting feature for a writer in the Marxist tradition, because obviously we think of Marx, we think of determinism, we think of historical materialism. But she actually understood that when you put in human agency in in part of of this um, framework, you can't really predict where things would would go. And I mean, when we think about Poland right now, it is so different to her Polish upbringing. And I spoke to a lot of, I have a lot of people in my circles who are Polish immigrants, both in the UK, in other parts of Europe, and of course in Israel, which is where I'm from. And, you know, I was raised amongst many Polish Jews, including, I should say, Rosa's great nephew is a very close friend of my aunt's. So, you know, this is a background from which Mm. I myself came. And And it is a very different background to the one in which she was raised. And I think, you know, that everyone wants to draw parallels between where we are now and what happened in the beginning of the 20th century and especially the middle of the 20th century. But I actually think we need to be very careful with that, not least because we know what happened in the 20th century, right? If, if Rosa was allowed today, she would be writing one pamphlet after the other, studying what's going on and comparing it and not saying, oh, it's exactly the same. Mm. So I think... We're living in a very different time. We're living with very different technologies, but the danger of authoritarianism is the same, but its guises are very, very different. Um, Now, of course, as you mentioned uh, there, Rosa uh, went to Germany and, of course, was involved uh, uh, very much in the uh, political scene in Germany. Um, And at one point, of course, she was a member of the the SDP before she um, left. Do you think that, the um, political situation in um, Germany at the time was more open to um, perhaps more uh, left-wing politics and perhaps more Marxist-leaning politics than perhaps Germany is today? Um, The short answer is no, because first of all, it should be noted that the SPD, the party in which she agitated most of her life, was illegal about 30 years before she joined it. So August Babel, who was again a close comrade of Marx and and wrote alongside him, um, as well as Liebknecht, the the elder. So Karl Liebknecht was a close comrade of Rosa's and Wilhelm Liebknecht was one of the founders of the SPD. Both of them had to work in hiding for some periods because the SPD and left-wing agitation was illegal. By the time Rosa joins the SPD, it's already a fairly centrist party, a social democratic party. And I should say that social democracy at that time was not 
what we understand today as social democracy, not least women and the working classes did not have the vote. So who benefits from the social democracy is a very big question. Mm. And um, throughout her life, from the moment she enters the movement through Polish uh, anti-nationalism, then the Internationale and then the SPD, Rosa is always the left-wing marker. She is always the Marxist dissenter, really. She's never in the mainstream and she never wants to be in the mainstream. I mean, I, I don't think at any point of her life she thought, ah, you know, tomorrow I'll wake up and I'm going to lead a party. <laughs> and, you know, one of the people she has a longstanding um, correspondence and um, a debate with is Lenin, who was a leader of the Republican <laughs> Party. And there are a lot of uh, both similarities between them, but also differences. And I mean, when we think about Germany today, again, it's a country that has been through such a huge arc of history since her time. And, um, you know, I think it is a social democracy in a different way to Rose's, but it is really a social democracy in a way that neither the UK nor the US are. Mm. And, um, you know, it allows... It has a lot of flaws. <laughs> I'm not going to defend Germany now, and especially not in the context of European politics, but it definitely is protecting its citizens much more than many countries are doing at the moment. And actually, a lot of the things that Germany is doing at the moment are things that Rosa agitated for, be it you know a more um, expansive social state, really, uh, be it the refugee um, allowing more refugees in, like, let us forget that Merkel was the leader who allowed more refugees than most other European leaders. Mm. And let us forget that Rosa herself was a political refugee. So, you know, there, there are some interesting parallels there. But again, I think, you know, Germany that comes out of the Second World War, that goes through the whole period of having the GDR and uh, the, the wall and the separation and then the fall of the USSR, is a very different nation and has a very different consciousness. Um, you know, the, the more interesting question to me would be what kind of home would Rosa find in today's Germany? And I mean, I was I went to Berlin for the 100th uh, year marking of her murder. And, you know, there were huge state affairs. I went I, I spoke in a huge event in the center of Berlin where the Berlin mayor spoke. And um, there was a massive march throughout the streets of Berlin. So it's really interesting that she was so extreme in her life and her afterlife, and she still loved and revered in contemporary Germany, which kind of, I thought, you know, that, that's something for us to think about. I, I, I don't know if we're going to see, um, you know, the Sylvia Pankhurst 100 years to her death, if there's going to be, you know, 20,000 people walking through the streets of London. I really hope mm -hmm. so, but I'm not holding my breath for that. So, uh, yeah, very, very different country. One of the things that I think um, is particularly uh, interesting in the way that you uh, describe and discuss it in the book is Rose's relationship uh, with Karl Kortsky. And I wondered, what do you think that relationship uh, represented in terms of um, politics, in, in terms of, because of course they, they had quite um, different ideas. Um, what do you think it, it represents in, in terms of the um, different trends of, of, of thoughts in, in left-wing and, and Marxist politics. So Karl Kautsky was an interesting figure. He was very central to the SPD, as was also Edward Bernstein, who um, another person she argued with quite a lot in her lifetime. And, um, and many others, of course, but I think these two represent something very different to her. I think Kautsky represents a certain reading of Marxism that lets go of dialectics of um, more, I would say, a moderate reading of Marx that allows for expansiveness into a centrist party. 
one of the main things that Rosa Luxemburg outlines early in her life, I should say very, very early, we're talking about the 19, not even the 1910s, a little bit before that, is the connection between imperialism and um, capitalism and how the SPD is complacent in imperialism. And at that point, Germany is, you know, conducting a colonial um, regime in, in many parts of the world. And she is a teacher in the SPD school and she lectures in a series of lectures about the effects of capitalism penetrating non-capitalist economies. Later, this becomes Comes her great work, I think one of her greatest work, works really the accumulation of capital. And this is a point in which Kautsky and Bernstein and others who are not critical of, cap of, of imperialism, who are not critical of this expansionism of capitalism kind of go away from, from her strand of thinking. And this is even more pronounced when she connects that critique of imperialism to her critique of the First World War, where again, most of the SPD at that point voted for war credits wanted to, Germany to join the war, were very militaristic. Rosa Luxemburg was all her life at the center against war, at the center against violence. She chronicled, she went to Russia during the first revolution, the 1905 revolution, and she chronicled what violence does to the people on the ground, what, what it means to live when the state enacts violence on its people. So for her, Germany joining an imperialist war was really a moment of no return. So I think, you know, there's a lot of things to be learned there about what it is that left socialist parties or left socialists by name, except as part of them. And for Luxembourg, it was always socialism is dissenting against militarism, is dissenting against imperialism, whereas for Kautsky and others, it was part and parcel. And, you know, you needed to do what you needed to do in order to keep the party and in, in in power and to enable its rule. And I will say just as a, as a conclusion that one of the most interesting things for me and something that I'm still writing about was actually the relationship between Rosa Luxemburg and Louise Kautsky, who was Karl Kautsky's first wife, uh, second wife. His first wife went to England and lived um, with Engels in her la his last years. And um, Rosa Luxemburg was a very close friend of Louise Kautsky. And throughout the years of dissenting, you know, she writes these awful pamphlets against Karl in which she kind of takes down every single thing she, he writes. But then at the same time, she's writing very loving and um, tender letters to his wife. And there's kind of this ability to live with contradiction and with dissent that I think is really very urgent for us right now. And kind of the ability to say, I disagree vehemently with this man, but I can still be his wife's best friend, which I think is really a remarkable feature. And just to end on the fact that Louise Kautsky in herself was an important activist and a socialist feminist who has been, like many others, written out of history. And you know, I'm writing about her right now because these women really sustained the movement and not many people are interested in them, they're interested in, in the gentlemen, as always. Um, one thing I think you really bring out in the book is the mixture between um, philosophy and uh, politics that is all wrapped together. And you see that in um, Rosa's work, whether it be uh, accumulations of capital or, or, or any of uh, her other works. Do you think that the relationship between philosophical thought and political thought isn't as emphasised um, now in, in modern politics and that we don't tend to think of uh, politics now as connected to philosophy as it, as it was in Rosa's time. I mean, she wasn't a philosopher. She was an economist and she was a political theorist. And 
you know, this one legacy, she takes a lot of things from Marx in form and in content. And there's a very famous Marxist quote, philosophers hitherto interpreted the world, the goal is to change it. And she definitely lived that dictum. I think we do have our Marxist thinkers. We do have, um, you know, great figures on the left. We've just lost a couple. You know, we've lost Mark Fisher a couple of years ago. We've lost David Graeber just, just recently. Um, but we also have really important women thinkers of our time. I have to say a really important inf inspiration for me was Jodie Dean. Um, is, I should say, she's still around and writing, thankfully. And, you know, she's a great thinker on the left. She's a great activist. And, um, you know, I went on a march with her once and we had a chat about uh, Luxembourg and Lenin. And that I kind of, you know, that stuck with me as kind of thinking there are still people who are writing books as well as going on marches and doing all of these things at the same time. And I mean, the other thing is that we usually notify these signifiers after they're gone, which is very sad. And Luxembourg was, she, she had a cult around her in her lifetime, but the way that we understand her today is 10 million times larger than how she was understood in her lifetime. So, you know, one thing that we really need to do better is to identify these radical women thinkers in our time and not um, wait, you know, a hundred years later. So someone, someone will write a book and, and think about these relationships. I really do think we have quite extraordinary women thinkers, agitators. Uh, you know, I'm a really big fan of the work of Priya Gopal, who just uh, published Insurgent Empire, and does a lot of work on the ground as well, a lot of organizing. As I said, um, Jody Dean. So, you know, there's a lot of names out there, but we just need to be more attentive to their work in the present and not wait for the departure. Um, now, just turning away uh, from the book uh, for a moment, I know that... Uh, relatively recently, uh, you were involved in um, protests in Israel ag against um, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, could you mm -hmm. explain what the um, protests were about for people who aren't uh, aware of them and, and what the experience was like? So I should say in parenthesis that I'm half Israeli, half Welsh, and I was raised in Israel and I was raised really on the left. I mean, we read Luxembourg when I was 13, 14. We were talking about her in the movement. Um, as an anti-nationalist Jewish woman, she was really important for us uh, to read and to engage these days. And um, Benjamin Netanyahu has been prime minister for very many years, at least a decade in, in succession, but more years beyond that and has really created um, a country that has drawn away from democracy a, a long time ago and has um, really got into fascistic lines of government, whether it is just yesterday, um, the Knesset, the Parliament of Israel, basically held one vote um, around um, an issue to do with him, and then the coalition didn't like it, and then they recalled the vote, which is, of course, a clearly anti-democratic um, mechanism. There's been huge attacks on freedom of speech. There's been huge attacks on civil society. There's been huge attacks on human rights organizations that have been ongoing for as long as I can remember myself, but have been really intensified, intensified and especially with the rise of social media, which enables to find victims and, and to kind of hold them very easily. And um, Netanyahu himself has been involved in several corruption affairs uh, that have been brought to a public knowledge quite a while ago. And no um, police or um, legal repercussions have 
followed that. So, you know, although it is clear that he was involved in wrongdoing and in corruption, he is facing no responsibility. At the same time, you have what's happening everywhere, which is the COVID crisis that has hit Israel-Palestine. We should actually say Israel-Palestine here because it is, you know, the fate is very bound together um, very badly. And uh, you have a whole country that has been forced to go into lockdown without any economic um, safeguards while seeing its its ruler really enjoying a life of um, joy and um, indulgence and, you know, high-powered travel, etc. And that that has really pushed towards popular protest that has started really early on. We're talking about February, March, the beginning of lockdown. People went for socially distant protests. So people stood two meters apart, all wearing masks, um, holding signs against Netanyahu and has been ongoing till um, this stage. And I should say, you know, for, for those of us on the left in Israel that see Palestinian sovereignty as key for any process of democracy in Israel, and this is where it's a frustrating conversation because because you can't just talk about anti-corruption or, you know, holding Netanyahu for, to accountability. You have to talk about ending the occupation of Palestine. You have to talk about ensuring freedom and human rights for all. Um, for many of us on that strand, we're trying to really think about where this agenda fits in, in these kind of very widespread pro-democracy protests, that some of which do not come from the left. And just so you get a sense of numbers, we're talking about uh, one last weekend, there was a protest of around 210,000 people, while the whole population of Israel is around 7 million. So you're talking about a very large percentage of people who just went to the streets with homemade signs. And I mean, I'm, I'm an activist before I'm a writer and before I'm doing anything else. That's kind of how I think and that's, that's where my heart lies. And for me, it's been beyond exhilarating to see this kind of huge popular uprising and to see the fact that people are really talking about caring for their country and caring for their community. However, as, as you know, as a good lefty, I kind of, I really want to see the agenda pushed further. And I really want um, all my comrades, everyone who's, who I've been working with since I'm a teenager, how to end the occupation really, um, well, all then we're trying to push their agenda to, to be more, radical really and to talk not just about getting rid of Netanyahu but what would happen the following day and the most important thing for us is to really talk about what happens with the occupation because it, it is a dream to see a, a leader that is not Netanyahu but it is a very small dream compared to a dream of a democratic Israel-Palestine with equal human rights for all. So you know this is an ongoing event. There's at least two or three protests every week. And I do encourage your listeners to look up on the media and to see what's going on, because it's not being reported in the UK at all. Mm -hmm. I'm really grateful that you asked me about it. But um, this is the beginning of something that I sense would be quite interesting and quite important. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been um, great to speak to you, Dane. And I've got one uh, final question. Just turning back to Rosa for a moment. Of course, uh, it, it, last year it was the uh, 100th anniversary of her death. If Rosa could have somehow been transported to uh, today, what do you think she would think of the world today? Do you think that she would be happy about some uh, improvements or do you think that she would still think that there is a, a long way to, uh, to go? I mean, both things at the same time. She was a dietitian, and by that, it means that she really knew how to live with the positions. And I think we mustn't underestimate a lot of the achievements of, of 
her work and others like her. Eleanor Marks, Sylvia Pankhurst, who I mentioned, um, which is, you know, the eight hour day, it is universal suffrage. But, you know, over the past few days, we've been um, watching how in the UK, the parliament is voting down the ability to feed children mm. over, over the holidays. And you're seeing huge surges of poverty around the world. Um, and I'm talking now about the so-called West, the so-called developed countries. I'm not talking about, you know, the countries that she then wrote about as part of the, the imperialist project. And she would be hugely frustrated by the fact that we're still allowing these things to get under the radar, to actually go unchecked. And uh, she would absolutely advocate for um, protest, for revolution. You know, she was first and foremost a revolutionary. She was first and foremost someone who called for a radical overhaul of today. Um, but she would also sort of notice the things that we have attained and we really need to fight for. And, you know, I'm now reading the new biography of Sylvia Pankhurst by Rachel Holmes, and um, you read about Victorian poverty. And then you look at the news and you see all these clips of, of children being hungry and you think, we really haven't learned enough. And I think that's another lesson that you can transpose. It's exactly the same lesson. And of course, they work together. They were, they were friends. Um, where do we stand when we see people around us going hungry, hungry? Where do we stand when we see people being persecuted for their opinions? She was a very strong defender of freedom of speech. She was a very strong defender of um, freedom to dissent. Uh, we are seeing a huge curtailing of um, civil rights and, and human rights in, again, I'm talking about Europe, I'm talking about the UK, I'm talking about the US, I'm not talking about anywhere beyond our very immediate world. And I think we really need to insist on these things that she fought for and many others have fought for um, and not let ourselves kind of be, be washed away with other things that might be taking our attention right now. And there was one sentence I found from her that I took as the epigraph for the book, which is, um, history will do its work, see that you two do your work. And I think that's basically the calling that we need to really every day do the work, go um, campaign, organize in whatever way we can, but also know that there's an arc that is much larger than us that is taking place. Uh, that's a sentiment I completely agree with, and I'm sure uh, most of uh, the listeners will agree with as well. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Uh, if people want to find out uh, more Thank about uh, yourself and about the book, uh, where should they go to, to find out more? Um, my biography of Rosa Luxemburg is freely available on Reaction um, books and from all good booksellers, buy from independent booksellers, don't buy from Amazon, who are treating their laborers in the same way that capitalism treated workers in Rosa's time. And um, I tweet at Dan and Naomi Mills, and I write quite a lot of opinion pieces. And um, I, I think, you know, Google in that sense could be your friend and you can easily find my work online also. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.